everyone, and welcome back to season three of Everyday Theology. We're super stoked to be back, to have a great lineup of guests, some people really excited to talk with. And when I say we, if you're a follower of Everyday Theology, if you listen to our teasers, you know that by we, I mean, I've got a new co-host and that co-host is Chris Green. He's going to be joining me for season three to be a consistent voice and having these conversations. He's brilliant. He's one of my favorite dialogue partners and all things theological. And so I'm excited to have him join me as we engage with some theologians, with some pastors, with some people in other disciplines and other fields, some creatives and thinkers. We're just real excited about having some great conversations, thinking about how theology engages with our everyday life. You might also notice that the podcasts look longer this season, and it's not because the the interviews are any longer than they have been in the past, but actually Chris and I have taken the time to just have some separate kind of conversations outside of our interviews. That could be conversations about something that happened in the podcast. It might be about a movie. It might be about art. It might be just about kind of pop Christian culture. Who knows? Chris and I, we... we talk a lot and we can engage in a lot of conversations in thinking about kind of our church world and our theological world and kind of what's going on. So we invite you to kind of stick around and just hear those conversations. They're a bit more open and a bit more conversational as it's just me and him having conversations, sometimes disagreeing, sometimes agreeing, joking around and having fun as we are kind of in season three together. So I'm hoping that we hope that you're going to enjoy this season. We've had so much fun recording it so far, and we're just so excited to be back and to be with you again. So welcome and join along as we explore in season three of Everyday Theology. Welcome to Everyday Theology. It's a bit of a different one because as much as Chris has been my co-host for this season, he is not here today. So if you're expecting to hear him, I'm sorry, you're stuck with me. But I do have uh, something really good for you in the fact that I've. it may not be replacing Chris, but I think he's quite great and have read a lot of his books, lots of things to, to talk about today. And I've got Matthew Bates with me. Matt, thanks so much for being here today. Hey, Aaron. Thank you for having me. Just for uh, everyone listening, just so you know, Matt Bates is an associate professor of theology at Quincy University, where his main area of teaching is Bible and early Christian literature. He's written quite a few books, as I mentioned. Some of the ones that kind of I've engaged with a lot are Salvation by Allegiance Alone and the Gospel Allegiance, and he's got a brand new book out now called The Gospel Precisely. And I think that's what we're going to talk about today is the gospel precisely, really just what is it? Uh, it's one of those words that everyone uses, but maybe we don't always get right. And so we're going to chat about that word today um, and how how Matt has kind of helped rethink what that means. But first, before Matt, would you mind kind of introducing yourself to the audience, let them know a little bit more about you, who you are, and maybe even where why you got into thinking about the gospel? Well, I'm... Uh Associate Professor of Theology at uh, Quincy University, and um, been here for 11 years teaching. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mostly teach Bible classes or courses that are more entry level on, you know, um, Christianity and Judaism, Islam kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, I love what I do. It's a great privilege. I have seven kids. And how oh, did wow. I get it, How did I get involved um, in biblical studies? Well, God changed my life um, whenever I actually took a New Testament course as a sophomore at Whitworth University and um, uh, helped me clean up some sin issues that were going on. And uh, and at the same time, like helped move me out of like maybe a hard fundamentalism where I maybe had read the Bible, but like really didn't know how to read the Bible um, as I had inherited a certain kind of framework for reading it that was very proof text oriented. Um, And as I began to understand like, no, like God has intentions through the whole letter he's written, for instance, to the Corinthians, uh, first Corinthians, like the the whole letter might have a message and thinking about how the various parts interlocked. um, I began to realize that the Bible 
would demand my most um, careful intellectual work. And it fascinated me. I was yeah. actually doing a degree in physics um, and uh, finished the degree in physics, but had become hooked on scripture uh, in the meanwhile. So um, I began to teach myself Greek uh, while I was working as an electrical engineer and then went to seminary at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, where I got to study with Gordon Fee and uh, other folks. Oh, that's For those cool. of you who are yeah, Bible yeah, yeah, people. Yeah, yeah and then uh, from there, I went back into engineering for a short season because I was out of money. Um, and then I <laughs> uh, did PhD work at University of Notre Dame, um, writing a uh, dissertation under uh, the Lutheran scholar David Ani. So that's a little bit about my academic background. And I first began to pay careful attention to the gospel, specifically when I was doing my dissertation work. It forced me to uh, deal with the gospel in great detail. Um, and uh, so that that um, actually was the springboard for many things. I got to say, you, you passed over pretty quickly seven kids. Yeah. I mean, that's we're about to have our first, and seven is already blowing my mind. Yeah, just because it's, the it's first. intense. It's awesome. It's amazing. And, Your gift. And, and for everyone who, uh, another one, you know, Gordon Fee, I mean, you know, many people who listen to this podcast know I'm a Pentecostal. Uh, I don't know if I can call myself ex-Pentecostal. I'm not a part of a Pentecostal denomination anymore, but very much that's my roots. I mean, Gordon Fee was like, you know, the hero of Pentecostal scholarship for quite some time, right? He was the one that we all look to. So that must have been, you know, a really interesting person to study under, especially as you're getting back into scripture. Uh, how was that experience? I know that's not well, at all Gordon what we're talking Fee about. But I'm everybody's, kind of... He should be everybody's hero. He's one of the finest interpreters of scripture around and, uh, and, a, and a, a great human being, too. So yeah. um, if you've never read any Gordon Fee, um, maybe start out with Paul, the Spirit, and the people of God. Um, I'll recommend that one. Now, again, this is an aside. You've just blown my mind for a second because of the whole Gordon Fee connection. Because, you know, one of... Uh, the professors at the university that I now find myself, Ashland University, is uh, is Dr. David On, who also studied under uh, Gordon Fee. But then you also said a David Ani, and I'm like, mm-hmm. I, is that the same person? Is that it just is a not. different way? Oh, okay, it is a different person. There's two so close. scholars named David Ani, um, and uh, yeah, David um, was at uh, University of Notre Dame that I studied under. He wrote the two um, or the three volume Word Biblical Commentary on Revelation. Oh, all uh, right. A bunch of other books too. That especially looking at New Testament and literary genre issues, he wrote a number of books um, in that direction. Uh, well, now that I've kind of geeked out for a second on those things, now we got to get into the meat, right? What what we're here for, you know? For me, I was introduced to your to your writing because in my dissertation, I'm re looking at kind of a theological uh, redefinition of what we talk about when we use this word faith and what does it mean and everything involved with faith. And uh, so I picked up your book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. And even as I mentioned, even though we might have some areas of disagreement, I recognize pretty quickly that you're trying to do something in talking about, even in that book, the gospel, what we talk, what we mean when we say gospel, what is this actually doing both in the world and to us and how it's, you know, maybe a bit different than what we first perceived. So I think maybe the first thing that I could ask for you to kind of go through with our audience is, why did you feel, what did you feel when you first started kind of going through this, let's talk about the gospel thing and re-looking at it? What was your pain points? What was, maybe if you can give like the definition of the gospel that you've kind of always heard and then the pain points that made it in your research that started going, I think this is different than maybe what I've always heard. Well, I think the gospel is a vague thing, um, especially in a lot of um, pop Christian culture, right? Um, as um, anything, it can mean anything from just like forgiveness to grace that you're wanting to extend to somebody to, yeah. um, you know, you just being happy about um, Jesus in some <laughs> sort of vague way, right? Um, and so that's some of the pain point. More specifically, um, there are versions of the gospel that really center on um, a Romans road approach, like... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of um, would kind of begin by saying like, well, God created the creation good, but then, you know, there was this problem of human fall and um, in light of the problem of human false and then in the world. So God had to send Jesus to die on the cross and to make atonement for the sin um, in order that um, we can get right with God uh, and that we can go to 
be with him in heaven. As true as all those things are, that's actually not what the Bible means by the gospel at all. So um, even though those things are saving truths, um, they actually don't connect to the biblical word gospel, nor to how Mm. the New Testament uses the word gospel. So that was the pain point, was seeing that the way in which the 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 presentation of the gospel was mobilized in the church um, was at a considerable distance from how the Bible speaks about the gospel. When did you first start realizing that? Because I, 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 I asked that question in the sense of, because that's such a common definition, I mean, it's the one that I was raised with, it's the one that, you know, you hear any, I don't want to say any, but, you know, online preachers, if you're ju- just jumping into something about getting saved, that's the definition of the gospel that you hear. When did you kind of first go, uh, and what was it that pushed you to that place of going, there is something more to this than just that simple definition? Uh, probably when I started reading uh, N.T. Wright when I was at Regent College, um, this would have been 2001. Um, so I, I was reading New Testament, the people of God, Jesus, and the victory mm-hmm. of God, um, and uh, beginning to rethink in fundamental ways a lot of what, um, yeah, a lot of what I had grown up with, uh, not in the sense of casting it all off, but that this more nuance was needed and that there was a richer background and context uh, for which we can understand the gospel and Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to say this, but all all roads seem to lead back to N.T. Wright somehow. Whether agreement or disagreement, he really has fundamentally changed, you know, biblical scholarship, right? Yes. So now, when you're defining it, you're defining it in a different way. That may be the, kind of like the juxtaposition that we can start from, the one that I imagine everyone who listens to this podcast, if they grew up at all in the church, they've heard that, that kind of definition, right? So what is it? Why... What, what would you say it is now through these books that you've written in your research that is so fundamentally different? Well, the easiest way to summarize would be to say the missing king, right, is what's missing in the, the previous gospel hmm. presentation, you know, that I outlined, the Romans Road approach, uh, that the gospel in the New Testament is, is centered around the idea that Jesus has become the Christ. Hmm. And the word Christ means king. Um, so whenever we're, we read about summaries of the gospel in the Bible, um, they always focus not on Jesus per se, but Jesus in his capacity as the Christ. Hmm. And there's been a lot of confusion over that as Jesus um, has sort of just been a cipher for Christ. Like you could talk about in Christ alone, you could talk about in Jesus alone. It kind of means the same thing to people. That's not true in the New Testament. The New Testament is using Christ in a very specific way to speak about Jesus in his royal capacity as the Messiah. So whenever we see how the New Testament summarizes, they summarize that Jesus has become the king. So wanting to think through what is the process by which Jesus became the king, um, and when we when we think carefully about the process by which Jesus became the king, we find that the gospel is actually a narrative about how if the Father sent the Son, uh, that the Son, of course, as part of that, took on human flesh in the line of David, or we call that the incarnation, right? He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, uh, and this would connect both to his, his atonement for us, right, on the cross, um, right. but also uh, to the Old Testament story that this uh, correlates with, uh, these happenings. Right, that the Old Testament, um, the Old Testament announces a suffering servant or suffering figures who, in some way, die for um, for their people or are, are in other ways suffering uh, for the good of others. Uh, and then, of course, he was buried, certifying the reality of his death. Uh, he was raised from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Uh, and then he was seen by many witnesses. Um, and so the, the seeing of Jesus, right, verifies the reality of his resurrection. So we have, of course, the resurrection, which would be God's act of new creation, um, that um, we have new creation life because of Jesus lives. Uh, and then um, uh, the high point of the gospel, though, I think, as we're if we attend to the New Testament with care, is something that is frequently left out. And this is the real pain point, right? is that people have frequently left out Jesus's enthronement at the right hand of God. Mm. Uh, whenever we actually read biblical descriptions of the gospel, if we read the speeches and acts where the apostles are presenting the gospel, that's actually where they land the most energy is they want to say, you know, God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ, right? And in light yeah. of that, you need to respond to him. 
what has happened is that the gospel has gotten reduced down to the atonement. Uh, yeah. The gospel needs to include the atonement, but go beyond it to include the enthronement. We respond to the whole of who Jesus is, which includes his uh, his enthronement at the right hand of God. And then, of course, Jesus will come again. All those are statements that we could find in the Bible as gospel. Hmm. Now, and, and that definitely kind of expands it, right? It, it makes it a much larger proposition than just to say, Jesus died for your sins, so you don't have to go to hell, right? If like we really, really simplify it. Yeah. Now, why is that so difficult for some for some to kind of, whether it's accept or to kind of swallow, why is it, I mean, I've seen, I know that you've seen, um, you know, people who have pushed back on, on your books and they're upset and they're like, what is he doing? He's ruining the gospel, right? Like he's, 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 you know, I don't blasphemy heresy. I, I don't know if they've used those words, but right. But you're fundamentally changing the gospel and so there's a lot of pushback that I've seen happen. Why are people so concerned or why do they have so much pushback? And how is it that this definition is really pushing against people somehow? Because what you say here, I mean, I don't mean to cut you off there, but what you say here just seems so like to me when I hear it, I go, yeah, duh, right? Like, of course, that makes so much sense. Of course, that's the way it should be. But then there's so many people who go, that's just not the gospel. Uh, I think you're, you probably are overstating it a bit. Um, I would say that the reaction to my my work has been almost entirely positive. Um, there's been a few um, outliers of people who have found it controversial in some way, uh, but it's certainly not the majority. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, but I think among those pushing back, um, I, I think that you could take some of my statements in my books out of context and you could sort of say like, well, you know, he's trying to de-emphasize the cross, um, which is, I think, not really true. Um, I, I would say things in my book like that the cross is not the center of the gospel. Yeah. Um, and I think that's true. It's not. Um, I think there is no center of the gospel. I mean, I, I do say that the cross might be the dramatic center in some in some way, but really the climactic energy lands on Jesus's enthronement. I'm not denying the atonement. I'm not denying, you know, um, any of that. But some people have um, opted to read me that way, and I think uncharitably. Um, so uh, some of the pushback would come from that direction. Right. Um, I think the other um, kind of pushback comes from those who would want to keep justification by faith as the gospel. That was the mm. gospel according to Martin Luther, not the gospel according to the Bible. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And so Romans 1, 16 through 17 says something quite precise. Um, it says, in it, in the gospel, uh, the righteousness of God is revealed by pistis for pistis. And as that's been understood, the, the, the righteousness of God connects to justification or how we become innocent. I would articulate that as a benefit that flows through Jesus's kingship. Hmm. Jesus has become the king, right? And as the king, he's died, he's died for humanity, right? And that those who give their pistis to him, their faith, as it's traditionally been translated, but uh, we need to understand that faith can also mean faithfulness or fidelity or allegiance mm -hmm. or loyalty. And those who give their loyalty or allegiance to Jesus, trusting him uh, both for his atonement and his enthronement, right? That those people come into a right relationship with him, but that's actually a benefit of the gospel. And so if you're thinking of a particular controversy, there was some controversy with Greg Gilbert, uh, who writes for the gospel coalition among other entities. Um, and he, uh, and I had a, a correspondence, um, that was public, you know, kind of back and forth, uh, on some of this. And, um, I think he wants to preserve justification individually as part of the gospel as in like your, justification Aaron Ross is actually part of the gospel um, mm. that's what that's that's how he interprets the text um, I would interpret it saying no actually Jesus has provided justification for um, anyone who opts to follow him yeah um, but it's about Jesus's justification that he's offered for the community um, that you as an individual only share in it once you give your faith or your loyalty to him and therefore it's a benefit of the gospel and not intrinsic to the gospel in the way that he articulates so there would be some slight differences between um, folks like Gilbert and me, but I, I see us as on the same, you know, overarching yeah, Christian team. Yeah. Right. And um, yeah, and uh, it's a matter of theological precision that I think he's he's missing some nuance. Mm. Which, which you know, I, so many Christian debates, right, or arguments or pushback or whatever it is, really comes to, we're on the same team. We're just kind of looking at this in 
have the same end goal, but maybe just slightly different trajectories towards that end goal, right? And I think that can be hard for some people to recognize. We all have those because we all think slightly different, right? And we all even believe slightly different. But what I would maybe ask, so this is, I think, helpful, right? We're expanding the idea of what scripture is talking about as it relates to gospel. And it's both different, but also kind of similar. It's different, but it's also kind of helping us to better be formed. And so to put on that kind of like pastoral hat in that sense, how does reading the gospel the way that you proposed change Christian spirituality, change kind of, you know, the focus of Christian living that might be different than just to say, just get saved? Yeah. Um, well, because discipleship becomes integral to salvation within an allegiance model, right? That um, what you're doing whenever you enter into a right relationship with Jesus is you're saying, yes, I acknowledge you as my king. You're not just trusting the atonement. You're not just saying, like, I trust that your death for my sins is effective. You're saying, I trust that you have become the king of the universe. And as part of that, your death for my sins is effective. But that what puts me in a right relationship with you is my intention to live a life under your authority. You are my king. You dictate my morality. You dictate what is the good life. You show me what it means to be fundamentally human. You show me what it means for the glory of God to be restored. Paul calls the gospel, uh, the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. So really the gospel is about the restoration of the glory of God. And that happens through us imitating Jesus so that we're transformed into his image so that we begin to radiate the glory of God again. So in our brokenness as image bearers, we don't radiate God's glory the way that we should. Um, image restoration is the key to, um, to what it will mean for the world to again experience the rule of Jesus in a fulsome way. So it helps us to see that discipleship is intimately integrated to salvation and that in fact, as we come to be conformed to the image of Jesus, we begin to rule under and with him. And in so doing, we bring God's glory to creation. So it gives us our mission too. Our mission is to, um, of course, share the good news of Jesus with other people, right? That he is the true king, but also also, as part of that, it's to locally bring to bear the glory of God wherever we happen to be sovereign, whatever areas we happen to have authority over or uh, a sphere of influence. Are, we need to become conformed to the image of Jesus so that in that space, in that local area, within that sphere, we can make people see God because they're now seeing the image of God as it's actually yeah. being born through us. It, it sounds to me, and this is, I'm about to kind of take a hard left maybe for a lot of people when I ask this question, but it seems to me that even the way that you're talking about this has so much effect on things like social justice and movements within Christianity for engagement within the world that's just beyond, that doesn't, that still includes, but beyond simply just trying to get someone saved, right? Yes. Yes. One of the implications is that um, there's been a lot of misunderstanding about Jesus's rule. Some people think that, well, Satan is in charge or something like that. It's not right. true at all. Like Jesus has been enthroned at the right hand of God and Satan has been defeated and that all things are being brought in submission to the son, right? That's the, that's the state the world is in currently that God has installed his king and that when we confess him as king, what it means to be the church means to be the people who say Jesus is the Christ who can, who make the gospel confession, right? That constitutes the church and allows the spirit to rule. And when that happens, there's an alternative politic, like Jesus is the king in that space, right? right. If we right. as a church come together and we're actually confessing, Jesus is the king. And it's not just lip service. It's like a real confession. Like you are our sovereign, you direct us, then an alternative social and political order inherently emerges right there, right? Where the poor are cared for and where, um, 
yeah, social justice is a complicated thing, right? We don't want to mm-hmm. say social justice is equal to God's justice because that's just silly. And we need to think carefully about, yeah, different forms of social justice in our world. Um, but on the other hand, um, we do need to take seriously the idea that Jesus's politic involves God's justice. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, growing up, I think a common thing I heard in the church is that we needed to pronounce that Jesus was Lord, but then there was always a qualifier of my life as if like, as if it was so overly centralized to the person themselves that it was not, it was news to me when you first start talking about, you know, when you first start reading and you, and you actually start engaging all of a sudden saying, Oh no, scripture talks not about Jesus as Lord of your life, but Jesus is Lord full stop. Like it's, it's, it, yeah. it's it's everything it's not just one thing yeah a lot of devilish work has been done by that passage in john where jesus says my kingdom is not of this world right or that translation mm. of of or from it's ak in greek um and that that the term ak the preposition tends to be source or origin so jesus's point is that my kingdom's not sourced in this world mm. he's not saying he's not king of this world or not in the process of becoming king of this world so misunderstanding that created a kind of a two-tier theology where we didn't see jesus as ruling as the king over this world in any kind of way but that yeah. flies in the face of the whole rest of what the new testament teaches jesus has been installed at the right hand of god that's what the New Testament teaches, and that's the position of sovereign authority. Well, I think that's that's hard for some who might have this eschatological, this end of all things reality that, you know, the, the very Pentecostal reality I grew up with and even the group that I used to be a part of that was basically, well, God's just going to blow all this up and give us a new one, right? So, you know... It doesn't matter if he's king of this one because this one means nothing. It's trash. It's garbage. It's just going to be destroyed and then we're going to get a new one. But when you start kind of talking about it this way and you start thinking about Jesus as king here on this one, I hope that those who kind of start reading those passages again recognize maybe those passages aren't saying God's going to blow this up and give us a brand new one. Actually, God loves this one and he wants to redeem it. Yeah. And that's important. And the way to nuance that properly, I think, within a biblical theology is to say that God's process of new creation has already begun and it's percolating in the midst of the present creation, right? That Mm -hmm. um, the old creation is founded on um, what Paul calls the stoicheia, right? The foundational structures of the universe, as he calls them in Galatians chapter four, right? Um, And uh, what God is doing through the resurrection of Jesus is he's launching a new creation. So the resurrection is a new creation activity. The sending of the spirit is a new creation activity that brings refreshment in the midst of the old creation so that the old creation is restored to the kind of glory filled creation that God intended it to be. So whenever we talk about new, when the Bible uses new creation language, it's primarily speaking about God's activity of new creation in the midst of the old and that we see God is going to um, shake the present order um, as he <laughs> describes it in Hebrews. Um, uh, but uh, that as part of that shaking and, sh- and, and sifting, uh, that's going to uh, remove the dross, remove the impurities. Um, but as part of that, God is going to be bringing full restoration. Mm-hmm. So we want to see God as maybe um yeah, like overcoming the shabbiness of the present creation by refreshing it in a dramatic way. I, I would hope that, you know, those kind of notions would start to change the way that people think about our creation, right? I mean, those have such effect to, again, kind of a left field topic, but caring for the earth, caring for for our oceans and everything to say... You know, if God cares, if if he's working on new creation, how we are stewards of that creation today is, in essence, partnering with God in God's work of new creation, right? That's absolutely right. We're bringing, we're, yeah, if, if in light of Christ, we're transformed so that we begin to 
reflect God's glory more fully, then we begin to bring that to bear on whatever is under our care, including creation, so that we begin to steward over it in ways that would reflect um, and enhance it to, to make it more fruitful for life, I think would be um, one way of thinking about it. And not just human life, for all of yeah. life, right? That right. Adam and Eve are placed in the garden, par- partly to tend it, right? And that's because it has a wild fruitfulness, right? That needs to be tamed and marshaled and directed in some way, right? And that as the glory is restored, like um, we need to, um, yeah, to be tending to creation so that we can bring it to its maximal flourishing um, for the good of not just human creation, but of all creation. And that that brings greater glory to God. Now, you mentioned something about Romans and this Romans road thing, which I got in trouble once. I was teaching a class, teaching a class on theology, and I went on just a rant. And I, at one point, just blurted out, there's no such thing as the Romans road to salvation. And, you know, one of my students said, uh, my other professor was just teaching us in evangelism, the Romans road to salvation. I'm like, well, just don't tell them that I went on this rant, right? Like, we'll keep that between us. But if there is no, many would understand that Romans road of salvation as this kind of very, what was often given as the simple format of the gospel message, right? And here's how you get saved. And, and that's it. But if you've expanded this idea of gospel, right, and it's it's a much more inclusive aspect to Christ as king and what that means for us as humanity and creation, how, how do we present that, right? I think we've all been ingrained so much to be able to kind of give that gospel presentation, right? I mean, growing up, it was how do you... Again, growing up in a Pentecostal church is a wild place, but right, how do you share the gospel is like one of those things that you get kind of ingrained into you, this mm-hmm. very ABCs of Christianity or of salvation and and how you how you actually lead people to Christ. Yeah. But with this idea of gospel being a bit of a more expansive idea, how would you say to people who are like, how do I share that notion? Maybe not in an evangelistic sense of going, I'm trying to get you saved and not in hell or anything like that, but just how would you present it to someone as in this is this is the crux of Christianity? Yeah, I think there's nothing wrong with thinking about how we would do it in a real practical way. I think we need to meet people at their point of need, which is um, where in their life are they not allowing Jesus to be king? Their life probably looks pretty ugly in those places, right? And our lives look ugly in those places. So sharing vulnerably about like my own past experiences or present experiences and saying like, hey, in this area of life, this is I didn't allow Jesus to be king. And this is what it looked like for me. And it sucked. And it's had these kinds of effects in my life that I'm still trying to clean up the damage from, right? Um, uh, and saying like, when I when I when I gave my life to Jesus, in the sense not just of trusting that the atonement worked, not just believing He died for my sins, but actually acknowledging His kingship, um, then God's saving power began to change my life. And here's how I was transformed whenever I let Jesus be my saving king, let him be my liberating king, let him be my healing king. And that's what people need. People people need most of all to acknowledge that Jesus is king. They need to make the confession. They need to say, I am giving my loyalty to Jesus as the king. And when they do that, then the cross covers their sins, right? We've gotten it backwards. We said what they need to do is they need to trust the cross covers their sins. And then once they trust that, then they'll be free. Hmm. It's actually the opposite. What they need is actually to give their life to Jesus as king. And when they do that, then the atonement flows over them, right? And their and their sins are forgiven. Like whether they trust that their sins are forgiven or not is not the main point. The main point is whether they're giving their lives to Jesus as king. Because either way, if they give their lives to Jesus as king, then the atonement is going to cover their sins, right? Um, and so I, I want to say that the cross is like incredibly important, right? It's where our sins are yeah. forgiven historically, and that we do need to trust that as part of the larger gospel message. But again, like the main point of energy, right, in our gospel proclamation needs to be that Jesus has become the Christ, right? And that he's the crucified king, he's the resurrected king, uh, yeah. but we need to acknowledge him as the king, and then we need to embrace his cross and resurrection-shaped life. Right. As we begin to submit to his authority, when we do so, we're forgiven. So it's changing the trajectory of our evangelism away from saying, like, what you really need to do, like, this is what we tend to do now, say what you really need to do is you need to trust Jesus died for your sins. Yeah. Instead, what we, we need to do is we what you really need to do is you really need to give your allegiance to Jesus as king. 
And when you do that, actually your sins are forgiven, right? Mm-hmm. That's actually like, it's a benefit that you get from his, from, from coming under his kingship. And when we get it right, then lives are changed. Yeah. When we get it wrong, people say, okay, I, I, I trusted that once. And now I'm like on my way to heaven, I guess. So I don't really have to do business with Jesus anymore. I kind of done my business with him and uh, it was pretty awesome. I trusted him that once. Yeah. <clears throat> or you can scare people out of hell. And when they stop fearing hell, for whatever reason, if they maybe even deconstruct the idea of hell, there's no need for the antidote, right? The solution or whatever it is, right? Or what I used to see in the old signs being fireproof, dun, 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 right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much I, I want to talk about based on what you were just saying and about that kind of presentation of, of the gospel and some of our kind of liberation liberation theolo- uh, theologians and theologies and kind of how we would think about this notion of freedom but but we don't have time but i do need to ask before we get into talking about your books and making sure everyone knows what they are kind of what they can expect from them you know if romans doesn't have a road to salvation the way that we presented it you know Someone might be left going, well, what is Romans really about? And I know it's not a topic of your your text, but you clearly understand. How would you kind of present that? It's not a Roman road to salvation. It is a what? Well, I'd be careful because I do think that we would want to say that those passages that are marshaled as part of the Romans road are true. Um, right. And that they, yep. they, they do communicate truths about salvation and just not the gospel. The gospel is a proclamation that Jesus has become the king. Right. And that as part of that proclamation that he there's a certain narrative to that. Right. Um, that he begins in glory with the father and will eventually return in glory to the father and the cross and resurrection are part of it. Right. Um, so I would want to say that Romans is certainly trying to communicate some of those saving truths, right? Um, uh, but they're not necessarily like identical to the gospel, and we don't want to mix them up. Um, but in in Romans more broadly, I mean, I think that God, uh, that Paul is trying to present um, to the Roman church um, the gospel, um, and part of what, how he does so is he does so at the beginning of Romans, right, where he says that um, that. You know, this is Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, you know, um, set apart for the gospel of God. Right. And then and then he begins to define the gospel. But notice it's not like the Romans road. Right? Right. What does he say? Right. He says that it's the gospel that was promised long beforehand through the prophets. Right. So he begins to talk about how it's attested by the Old Testament. And then he talks about how it involves, uh, on the one hand, Jesus being coming into being in the line of David. So it involves the incarnation. And then he says, but after the incarnation, he was appointed son of God in power, right? And so that's speaking about his enthronement at the right hand of God. So as Paul defines the gospel right at the beginning of Romans, it's about the incarnation and the enthronement of Jesus as king, right? And then immediately after that, Paul Paul says, this Jesus Christ, our Lord, right? And then he says uh, that as part of this, you know, this Jesus Christ, our Lord, he says that, uh, that the purpose of the gospel, right, was, uh, was in order that the nations might practice the obedience of pistis, right? Uh, mm-hmm. The obedience of faith is how that's sometimes been translated, right? Uh, but this is understood to be a faithful obedience or a loyal obedience, an allegiant obedience. And I think you can demonstrate that from looking carefully at how pistis language is used uh, in Romans. The first 10, 10 times pistis language appears in Romans, it means faithfulness more than it means trust. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're related. You can't separate the one from the other. But if we were to choose shade of meaning, it, it, it leans in the direction of faithfulness hmm. or fidelity. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's another one of those words, right? That's just been so needing clarification away from the oversimplification that we've made of it, that once we expand that term and, you know, it, it seems like so many people are attempting to expand. I think, you know, even in T. Wright in his new book on Paul uses probably five different definitions for pistis and he just interchanges them all the time, right? Trying to help people see it's a, it's a much broader thing than yeah, just it's a big belief, word. It's a plastic right? word. I think the, the most helpful thing for people is to realize like you have, however you define it, you have to have two things in play. You have to have on the one hand, one side, like trust or faith or belief in like that would be like directed toward like an object, like what we would normally think of like trust kind of in a person or a thing or whatever it might be. But on the other hand, at the same time, you have to have trustworthiness, somebody who, who proves faithful once you entrust something to them, right? You have to have faithfulness. You have to have fidelity. 
fidelity. You have to have yeah. loyalty. You have to have allegiance. So if you have both of those together, like you could say like, well, what does pistis mean? Something like trusting, uh, trusting loyalty, I think is the term Michael Gorman uses. I really mm-hmm. like that. Um, you could have um, something along the lines of, of, of faithful faith, right? Um, you could have something <laughs> along the lines of allegiance. Um, but you have to have the faithfulness and the faith together or you're missing what the word means. It has both of them there. Now, it, it can shade in one direction or the other and does uh, in different contexts. Um, but if you're missing that as part of the, the core of the meaning of the word, you're missing out. But what, it ha- what happened historically is that is that some people didn't want to do business with the faithfulness into the word because that sounded too much like works. Mm, right? We don't want yep. to talk too much about the right. loyalty or the allegiance dimension of pistis uh, because then we begin to get into trouble with works. But I think that's a misunderstanding of what works are and of yeah. how they fit into our whole, our whole understanding of salvation. And that honestly, belief for some is just as much a work as picking up a hammer and doing work or whatever you're doing good work in, right? Um, Matt, thanks so much for this. I mean, it's been, I think, hopefully hugely helpful for our listeners to kind of begin to reprocess gospel and why it matters. I think, I think it's, I think it's fundamental, right? I mean, as I, as I think about it, as the church is moving into the further into the 21st century, you know, we've got scary realities that we're coming up against and, and the decline of the church uh, attendance in America and in other places. And, really, really harrowing for those of us who teach theology, right, to think about that what we teach is becoming a declining uh, part of importance in our culture. But I'm, I hope, I have hope that this idea of allegiance, uh, this idea of gospel has begun to maybe reawaken us to the, the more grand nature of what this thing is of following Christ. For that, Matt, Tell us about, I've already mentioned your books, but for those who are like, I've liked this Matt guy, I like his ideas, I want to learn more, give us the the gamut. Which books should people follow and sort of read first and kind of what can they expect? Well, the most recent book, The Gospel Precisely, is oriented mostly toward like small group studies and leadership training. It's short, it's punchy, it gets right to the point. It has a biblical substructure and defense, but it's not a like, I'm going to prove everything kind of book. Yeah. Um, so it's it's not divisive. It doesn't name any names about who's getting the gospel wrong. Uh, non-controversial. You could use it in any kind of group, I think, without it raising, you know, huge like red flags for anybody. I think it's pretty centrist and, and biblical teaching to the very best of my ability to deliver it. Um, so that's a good place to start. And especially if you want to lead other people through the material, um, the gospel precisely. Um, I think actually my most nuanced uh, treatment of um, the question of what is the gospel? What is faith? What is works? What is grace? How do they interface within a royal gospel allegiance model? Um, how is it that this that this understanding doesn't fall us into the danger of works righteousness? All that business. If you want um, my most robust defense of all that uh, and articulation, you'll want to look at gospel allegiance. Um, if you want something that's the most wide ranging uh, treatment of salvation, where I get into like questions of order of salvation and election and um, and 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 also deal with the faith works problem and, and things like that, but do less with the gospel specifically. Uh, you'll want to check out Salvation by Allegiance alone. Um, and then beyond that, my I have some other books that are more technical. The Birth of the Trinity is probably my my most well known out of my my other books. Great, Matt. I, I would as someone again, as I've mentioned, as someone who's read those texts, I would really encourage everyone to to dive in i think they're really helpful treatments and and reconstructing redefining things that we might have already thought that we've known uh to see that there's more to it matt i really appreciate you taking the time thanks so much for being a guest um and i'm hopefully we'll talk soon thank you Chris, I'm not going to lie to you, man. Um, I'm a little upset with you. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, you uh, you played hooky on me and said, quote unquote, you were sick. Oh, man. Uh, and you left me. Listen, I'll, I'm going to reverse course on you and put, make you feel some guilt. Um, mm. I've been That's, having... We all need some guilt and shame. I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's what we need more. Um, <laughs> more and more of that. No, like, 
So you probably remember this when, when I was living in Lakeland, I had a stretch where I was having migraines every week. Yeah. Which are just, you know, for anybody who's struggled with that, it's just so debilitating. And then I've had a good long, like year and a half where I hardly had any, and now hmm. I'm starting to have them again. So I, Oh no, I had one you know, at a really inconvenient time and I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure what's happened, why they're coming back, but yeah, if you, if you can pray for me about it, cause it's a, yeah. I mean, you just, I can't at least, I can't function. Like it's right. It's right. Crazy. Oh, they're terrible. And now I do feel really guilty. Wow. <laughs> Gosh. Now I need to apologize publicly in front of all the listeners and say, sorry for using your illness as a joke. Well, uh, it is, it is unfortunate. And, uh, I owe you for sure. Cause I thought you were just like, I have a cough. I can't record. So, but that, that is a, that's a very much more reasonable, uh, and thing for prayer excuse. Um, and I, and listen, pray for my wife and my kids too. Cause I'm a terrible patient. Like really? when I'm, when I'm sick, like, um, I'm unbearable when I'm well, but <laughs> when I'm not well, nobody, not even the people who love me want to be around. Oh, you know, we we're expecting in January, uh, I'm a, I'm a little worried about what's going to be like when I'm sick and there's a baby mm-hmm. because, because my wife very much, it's, it's funny. It's when I was single for a really long time, we can talk about singleness and stuff in the church because I've got lots of thoughts on how the church has screwed it up. But cause I was single for a really long time. Right. Uh, I was fine. I could get sick and I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. Like, this is nothing. No big deal. I'll take care of myself. I could still be laid out in bed, but I'm never like, I don't need anyone. It's okay. Now that I'm married, I'm like, if I get even just the slightest sick, I'm like, I I need, I need Kristen. Right. Like it's the, somehow along the line, something, something shifted. And now I'm just the neediest sick person. So, uh, I get that. All right. Hey, uh, now that, uh, I don't feel quite as guilty, because I've apologized, but I still bear some of the shame of this public, uh, public forum. Uh, well, I had a conversation, uh, with someone who I've read a lot on, and I know you've read some of too, uh, Matthew Bates. And we talked a lot about, about faith and about justification and about really the gospel. Like, what does the gospel mean? How it's been kind of, you know, compressed into this really, really simple go to heaven, don't go to hell. Jesus died for your sins, um, reality. But one of the things that maybe I thought we could talk to the listeners about and just have a conversation on is really an idea of what, what Matthew is kind of arguing for, which is a kingdom theology, right? I mean, that's really what this kind of broader category would be considered in theological, uh, veins. And so I'm just going to ask your thoughts on kind of like a kingdom theological perspective, like where do you think that kind of fits? Is it something that we've just lost and we're picking back up? You know, how would you kind of go through the notion or or go through the idea of kingdom theology? Maybe what is the first blush response? Even when I say, how do you feel about it? You know, what's strange is honestly, and, and this is not a response to Matthew's work in particular, or Scott McKnight or, or others who are working in that, those categories. But there is a kind of irritation with me. And again, this is not personal. Like this is not, Oh no, no. I'm glad there's an irritation. I like this. (laughs) Matthew, if you're hearing this, this is not a reaction. Yeah, no, no, I don't mean about, I don't think about Matthew. I just mean, I'm glad that, you know, there's something to rile you up. So, so for, for a handful of reasons that, I think I can name one and and maybe the most pressing one, like the most irritating part of it is that I sometimes feel like people use kingdom language, almost like a, like a joker in a deck, like Hmm. term that doesn't really mean anything on its own, but is a way of trumping other terms. So like, 
kingdom instead of whatever it is that you're talking about. Right. So like, and this is more, again, this is again, really not about Matthew's work. No, because like, Ma- I don't think Matthew would do that at all. No, no, no. I think he right. has a specific use for it. And, I, and I'm coming to that in a moment. But I think like in Pentecostal charismatic circles, in evangelical world at large, kingdom becomes a way of criticizing whatever it is you're doing as mm-hmm. not big enough. Right. So mm, yeah, like you're concerned about X, not the kingdom. Right. right? Or what really matters. To you. So I'm thinking I'll just to name names, you know, people like the new apostolic reformation folks, Bill Johnson, all of those guys. Oh, like name the names. World. Yeah. Like the way they use kingdom is at times it has a very specific meaning, which is deeply problematic, but often it's just a way of criticizing religious life, churchly life, normal life. It's a way of insisting that what matters is the kingdom, not X, like whatever it is that you're, yeah. you're facing. Yeah. And I think it's a really part of the reason that's so irritating is it, there's no accountability for that when you use terms in that way. Hmm. Yeah. Because it, you, I mean, again, you can just keep changing the significance in order to critique it, the other, though, is it really obscures what the scriptures say about the kingdom, right? <laughs> and that's a serious problem, right? And so right. I am grateful for Matthew's work and Scott's and others. Not that I know these guys personally, but, you know, I've been around their work enough. That, yeah. I mean, it feels like they're at least trying to bring our attention back to what the scripture says about the kingdom of God. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Like, I think there are still things that I would. You know, I, where I would want to go to a different place, not necessarily in a disagreement. It's just, you know, I have different concerns and pulls on my thought, but you know, for for one, I'm not as concerned about kind of mainstream evangelical acceptance, right? I'm not trying to work in those categories. So that, that just changes what I'm able to say. But is that why this podcast doesn't get that many listeners? Because we don't care. No, I'm just kidding. We're fine. Uh, but Chris just went, why am I doing this podcast then? Uh, yeah, listen, I enjoy talking to you. I don't care if you're a book or not. <laughs> no, we uh, get, we get plenty. But that, that's, that's the irritation for me is that I, I think the term is used really sloppily. And yeah. interestingly enough, I think it's similar things are done with the spirit. Like it, it's a way. So like Jesus and the church feel concrete and specific kingdom and spirit are abstract enough that you can kind of use them Hmm. to kind of cut gaps. Can I throw a word in there too? Another one? I think that's where the word prophetic has gotten into. Absolutely. Because the prophetic, right, is all about the spirit and the kingdom and it gets, absolutely. And, and, and I mean, not to cut you off or, or rehash this, but just what you're saying reminds me of a very crazy kind of, season we just got out of, of the quote unquote prophetic people who had many claims about COVID or many claims about presidents and elections. And they were quote unquote, the prophets. And what did they do? They just changed the the game of what a prophet meant. They just changed the definition. And then on top of changing the definition, they became the judges of what is prophetic. Yeah. So basically the, the term could always change and the, the, the people who are changing the term are those who are the ones who are allowed to critique it, no one else. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think that kind of resonates maybe with what you're saying about kingdom and, and some of these larger notions, right. Is that when we don't really give them concrete feet or concrete founding kind of principles, they can just be whatever they want. That's right. That's right? exactly right. I, I, so I, again, not accusing Matt of that, but I think, or Matthew, I don't know what he prefers to go by. Did he say? Uh, now that now because we're recording this later, I forgot. Yeah, probably Matt. <laughs> okay. And if not, uh, Doctor Matthew Bates, I'm so sorry if you're <laughs> listening to this. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks since we recorded. Uh, so. Yeah, we'll, we we will we'll call him Doctor Bates. Yeah, that works. Yeah, I, I I'm not accusing him of that, but I do think in kind of pop evangelical culture and ex-evangelical culture maybe that's even more egregious like the use of the spirit and the kingdom language to kind of 
criticize Christianity, the church, yeah. religion, so on. And I, I think that at, in term, theologically, that's irresponsible. Like yeah. you just don't get to use the terms that way. I, I want you um, to do, I was about to say, do what the kids say and spill the tea. Uh, but then I don't know if that's even a saying anymore because I'm not up on that stuff. And uh, I learn things from the classroom when I'm in it. So we'll find out what the new phrase is this year. Um, when you said that, not to name names, but to name a name, here we go. Bill Johnson, how he uses it in a very concrete way, but that's very problematic. What did you mean? Because oh, yeah. I'm just curious. Okay, this this is a really... We might have to do an entirely separate podcast on this. I'm all about that. Um, so we can talk about specific works and it, there is slippage. So I don't think there's a, a kind of coherent way. He's not a rigorous thinker in terms of, and that, that's not meant as an insult. Like he's, that's not the business he's in. I mean, he's a pastor. So not a theological, not a theologian. Right. So there's no fault on his part for not, you know, hammering out the terms. But I think when the problem I have is the kingdom becomes identical with the will of God as it exists in the spirit realm that I'm able to bring to bear in the world through my faith and my own. Yeah. And that is just, it's what it ends up. I mean, there are seriously lots we could talk for hours about the problems with it. But one of them is in, in scripture, the coming of the kingdom of God is hope for the most vulnerable. Like that, right. that's right at the heart of what the hope of the kingdom of God is. The people who are at the mercy of the way the world works normally yeah. are, are not hopeless because the kingdom is coming, right? So the poor are poor now and Caesar's not going to do anything for them. Herod's mm -hmm. not going to do anything for them. Pharaoh's not going to do anything for them, but Jesus will. Right. Right. And, and so on for the widows, for the orphans, etc. What Bill Johnson's team, and, and I'm not just talking about Bethel, but I mean, a kind of the whole new apostolic reformation, a lot of the kind of non-denominational Pentecostal world, what they end up doing is making the kingdom of God a way of making this world work for us. Mm -hmm. So we yep. actually can leverage spiritual power, power in the spirit realm to bring about what everybody in this world already wants to do anyway. So we can get wealthy, we can get powerful, we can own the companies. We, you know, so here's an example. When I was at ORU teaching the, and this may be a little unfair to Bill personally. So Bill, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> I don't think he's one of those listeners though. <laughs> I'd be surprised, Bill. I mean, I, me, I, I guess I would love to talk with him. So I'm, I'm, I don't, you know, this is not some kind of personal attack on him. I just think that the teaching is unbelievably dangerous because of yeah. these confusions, right? Now, so all that said, I was at ORU, it's a chapel service, and the pastor is preaching on the day that ORU's baseball team is playing in the College World Series. Right. Hmm. So it happens to be chapel service while at the same time ORU's baseball team is, you know, in Omaha for the World Series. And he says that he, the preacher, I talked to the coach this morning and I told him the very first thing he should do in the very first game is throw a pitch at the head of the opposing teams. Oh, my gosh. And hope it hits him. Hope it puts him out of the game. Because they need to know that just because we're Christians doesn't mean we're soft. Oh, my gosh. And then Thurman was, we are more than conquerors, which means not that we conquer you, but we conquer you and humiliate you in conquering. What the heck and then is he this sermon? Oh, I know, yeah. And then he went on to talk about that we need to do this in all the seven mountains, right? So we need to do this in education. We need to do this in business. We need to do this in the arts. We need to do this in the news, family, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, down the list. And that's the problem, right? The kingdom becomes a way of leveraging God's power to make this world what we want it to be. 
not yeah. for the sake of the poor, not for the sake of the people who are most vulnerable, but for our own benefit mm-hmm. right? so that we're the ones with the large ministries and the fame and the wealth like that. That is that's Antichrist. Yeah, so I, that's what I'm that's what I'm projecting. It sounds and maybe I'll give an example, too, of kind of this use of kingdom that really becomes problematic is there are groups that I know that use this language and conflate kingdom with their own church or their own community. Yeah. Right. right. And so kingdom becomes, um, I know one way it's been used in which it was like, it was used as a title for a, uh, in, in the title for a program about those who gave extra money to the church for for quite literally building buildings and they're doing this for and right. And it's, it was literally set as a way of building the kingdom of give us money so we can build more churches, buy more things for the church. Right. As, as a quote unquote outlet for those who don't know how to serve in ministry, but have money, you can build the kingdom this way too, which really equaled this reality of, this is our kingdom, right? And we're conflating our kingdom with the kingdom and they're one in the same Absolutely. or it's an expression of the kingdom. So therefore it's okay. Right. And that's in that way. And maybe that's not wrong. Right. Again, maybe it's, I don't know. Sometimes I'm conflicted about why churches need such big buildings and programs. And, you know, we're paying a lot of money for electricity that for a place that's since empty most of the time. Right. Um, but, but maybe it's, it's not a bad thing to have a space and a place for people who are philanthropic, who see the benefits of what's happening in these places when they are full to be able to give to that, but to conflate it with this idea of the kingdom becomes really problematic because it is now no longer about the kingdom of God as much as it is the kingdom of this church at this place. Uh, Right. Completely agree. I, I know this is a little unfair to Matthew, Dr. Bates, because, you know, this is accidental to his work. But yep. for a lot of the listeners we have, you know, that I think this is relevant because this is yeah. the way kingdom is, is talked about. And I, so I think whatever disagreements I might have with him, I am at least grateful that at the very least grateful that he's pointing us back to the text of scripture to talk about what it means to refer to the kingdom of God, right? That it's, it's not just a term we can use for whatever we like. Yeah. And I think for a lot of listeners, I'm sure a lot of listeners will probably have engaged with this term kingdom, right? Uh, From church settings, preachings, teachings, whatever. And, and I'm with you in that, in that what, what Matthew has done has helped to ground it much more authentically and faithfully into what scripture is doing throughout the entirety of scripture, right? The overarching narrative, not just through the work of Christ in the gospels, even though he talks about gospel a lot, uh, that, that there's something larger to this term that we can be grounded in, but that, also should give us pause to use it for anything that we might. Absolutely. And yeah, I think, I, mean, I think his work does that very well. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the heart of it, as I said, I think is the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom is good news for those who are not experiencing good in the kingdoms of this world. Yeah. And that should humble us. It should call us to repentance. I mean, that's, in, in Jesus preaching, the kingdom is tied to a call to repentance mm-hmm. for all of us, all of the rest of us. Right. Right. And I, I think once you twist it so that out of the term is just a reference for your own kingdom, your own programs, or it becomes about something you leverage in the heavenlies to bring about in this world, what everybody wants to bring about anyway. Like I think, that's a really dangerous game you're playing, right? Because you're, 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 you're taking what is holy and 
bending it to your use. I mean, that is right. what Simon Sorcerer wants to do, right? right. I see the work of the spirit. How do I get that? Oh, oh gosh. Into my, yeah. my tool belt. Like, how do I get to appropriate that? Which I, I think that's, man, if the kingdom language in scripture means anything, it's you don't get to use God's work the way you want to. Which that is the spirit of Antichrist, right? Which is really, really, you know, once you start, we need to, we need to have someone to talk about that term on this podcast. I think that would be a great one, right? Like reframing Antichrist. Yeah. Uh, but once you start to realize the text is doing in, in New Testament about what the spirit of the Antichrist, Antichristos is, it's, it really, really seeps into to where we can point that out in our own Christian lives and church communities, okay. right? Um, which I think may be the, the benefit of thinking about Antichrist versus the way it's been used now about some person who's going to get shot in the head and come back to from the dead or life or, you know, and then put 666 in your forehead and then uh, you're screwed forever. So congrats. Um, yeah, that's a great way to end. Um, yeah, I trigger think, warning for those who were raised in rapture churches. Yeah, that's me. I, that was literally my own uh, kind of traumatic experience kind of coming out very quickly. Uh, hey, thanks so much for that, Chris. I think that's really helpful. Helpful for me. I think it's helpful language. I think I would encourage everyone again, even as I did in the podcast, to go buy Matthew Bates' work because I think it's really fundamental in that, that it really can help start to reframe the way, the use of this word in really helpful and holy ways versus self-serving ways that's been done quite a bit. Yeah. So go pick up that work and we'll be back soon. Yeah.